Thank you. Appreciate you doing that with me. Uh, we are in the middle of a series, not in the middle, we're coming to the end. This week and next week we'll finish this up. But we've been doing a series this summer on the crucial spiritual habits, talking about the practices that really make up the core of, of Christianity. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, they're, they're, Christianity is not just a belief system. It really is a belief system uh, that leads to a certain way of doing life together that is sustained by certain crucial spiritual disciplines, habits, means of grace, whatever word you want to refer to them as. And so we've been taking our time, given the amount of disruption that we've experienced over the last year and a half, to recenter ourselves in kind of the classical Christian spiritual habits. And we've come to the one that I've been dreading. I don't know if you've been dreading it, but I've been dreading it. And I told you a few weeks ago I was doing everything I could to not be here on the morning when we talked about this, and somehow I didn't pull it off. But this morning we're going to talk about fasting. And I know what you're thinking. That guy's going to talk about fasting. Okay, this should be great. And by fasting, we, refer, we mean abstaining from food or any physical appetite for the sake of some spiritual purpose. So here's my question to you. Does, does, does the idea of fasting sound absurd? Because if it does, it shouldn't. If it does, uh, that, that means something. That means something is amiss because it really is, uh, it really is a barometer of zeal in many ways. Mark Buchanan says this, he says, you can't read the Bible very far in any, any direction without realizing that fasting was simply a part of the natural rhythm of life for the people of God. They expected and planned to fast as naturally as they expected and planned to eat. To them, fasting was woven into the rhythm of life, like day and night, summer and winter, reaping and sowing, waking and sleeping. There were times you ate, and then there were times that you fasted. And we're going to read into the Sermon on the Mount in just a minute. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you fast. He didn't say if, he said when. And if you take that text and you look at it in its larger context, not only does it show he assumed that his disciples would fast, but those verses on fasting there are part of a larger portion there in the Sermon on the Mount about the practice of our faith. And so Jesus talks about fasting right alongside of prayer and generosity. And every single one of us know it's just natural for us to think of prayer and generosity. That's what Christians do, but, but yet fasting is right there as well. It's just as normative as the other two. So John Wesley, the story is told anyway, he refused to ordain anyone who didn't fast twice a week. So good luck becoming a Methodist minister. And I know, I don't, I don't know in, uh, in 13 years that we've had a sermon on fasting, so maybe put it on me. If it feels absurd, put it on me. Uh, but I can tell you, my childhood pastor at Calvary Baptist Church, he would do a 40-day fast every year. And so it was just a part of what I thought of growing up. I once did a 10-day fast when I was much younger and full of the kind of zeal and idealism that fades as the years go by. I haven't seemed to be able to recapture that. Uh, in later years, it was a wonderful experience. And only recently have I started uh, a new habit of fasting from lunch on Sunday to lunch on Monday for 24 hours. And that's really the discipline that we're asking you to consider, uh, a 24-hour fast each week. Now, but the other thing, okay, you also need to know that I watch an inordinate amount of Food Network, okay? <laughs> so just to cover my bases with my family again so they don't spend the whole time thinking what a hypocrite I am for talking about this. But you do too. You do too. And so maybe we have some things to talk about this morning. And so we come to the text in Matthew. Excuse me, we're going to read from Mark's gospel. Can't seem to get out of Mark's gospel, but Mark chapter 2, the, the three verses there, 
and then rolling over into Matthew chapter 6, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you would just read with me as we, as we look at these two texts together this morning. So let's hear from God's word. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and they said to him, Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast in that day. And then Matthew 6, Jesus said, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. So you see, it's here. It's not only here. If you do a search of the word, the word fast or fasting shows up quite a few places in the scriptures. So after 13 years, it's probably about time that we have a sermon on it. Okay. Now we have to say fasting is trendy today, but as a regiment for physical health. But we're talking about soul health here. It also is of significance to say that Jesus' ministry, we're here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, and back in chapter 1, you know that his ministry began with a 40-day fast. In Mark chapter 1, it says, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted. That's verses 12 and 13. And I've heard people say, so, so the Spirit drove Jesus out for 40 days of, of no food uh, into the wilderness, and I've heard people say that the enemy waited until he was at his weakest after 40 days of no food to tempt him. I disagree. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness to fast. And that phrase is a hint that he was not at his weakest, but at his strongest when the enemy came to him. The fast had strengthened him. He was hungry, sure, but because of his hunger, also far more alert to spiritual reality than he would have been otherwise. Consider this. The serpent came to the first man in a garden. And he was surrounded by abundance, and his belly was full, and he tempted him with food. And the man licked his lips and reached out with grasping hands and ate. And he came a second time to the second man in a desert. When he was surrounded by stones and scorpions, and his belly was empty, and he tempted him with food, and Jesus flicked him away like a fly. Now, that's Mark Buchanan's insight, but surely there is a lesson here. And Buchanan thinks so. He says this, who understands, really understands, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Who not only understands, but withstands because of it, overcomes on the basis of it? Is it the man with his belly full or the man with his belly empty? And then he says, let me be blunt. If you never fast... And the whole concept of being wholly nourished and sustained by God's word alone will likely be only a nice, sweet, and totally irrelevant idea to you. You may pay lip service to it, but you'll never, (laughs) he says, but you'll be too busy licking sauce off your lips to do any more. And worse, if you never fast, when the day of testing and temptation comes, you may not stand. So there's stuff at stake here as we talk about this this morning. Richard Foster and John Piper after him, they believe that this Mark 2 text or the Matthew 9 parallel text was the most important text in the Bible for understanding the place of fasting in the spiritual life for a person who believes. 
And so we're going to focus our attention there, and it really just kind of lines up to ask two questions, and they're the two that are prompted by the text itself. So first, why didn't Jesus fast? Because that's, what, that's the question that's asked, right? And secondly, why do we, or why should we? And that's all we're going to talk about this morning, so we're going to be done pretty quick. Why didn't Jesus fast? And then why should we, or why do we? Okay? Because that's really what the text is leading us to consider. So first... Why did Jesus and his disciples not fast? You see, if you look there at the Mark 2 text, that that is the question from the crowd. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the, of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not, they ask. And Jesus' answer was simple. He said, they, they fast, but we do not, because the bridegroom has come. So look at verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now, Let's take that apart a bit, okay? The question that is asked here contains a clear expectation that Jesus and the movement around him would embrace fasting like John, like the Pharisees. And that was part of the surprise. It was part of what caused people to miss what was going on in you know, everything surrounding Jesus. It was part of the stumbling block and the offense of the gospel because unlike all the rest of the people that he's being compared to here, Jesus came eating and drinking, not fasting. Do you remember they called him a glutton and a drunkard? Think about that. Isn't that fascinating? That's an amazing thing when you stop to think about it. When God showed up, they accused him of being a drunken, glutton, drunkard. And it really is, it really is an astounding thing. It's why so many people were scandalized by him. Now, it's a good reminder for us, too, that in a series like this on spiritual disciplines, that all virtue is found in avoiding extremes. To borrow from Louis Marcos, he says, not in gluttony nor asceticism, neither hot prodigality nor dry puritanism, to deny and mortify the appetites is as intemperate as to overindulge them. And he goes on to say that being too strict might be even more dangerous than being too lax. And he says, for in the Gospels, we find that it is the abstinent Pharisees who are more apt to reject Christ than the carousing prostitutes and tax collectors. And so our target is to enjoy God's gifts. Even in a sermon like this this morning, our goal, our target is to enjoy his gifts, but not to enjoy them too much, but not to enjoy them too little. And so we're talking about a rhythm of feasting. As we talk about fasting, we're really talking about a rhythm of feasting and fasting. Next week, we're going to talk about Sabbath. Sabbath assumes work, right? Fasting assumes feasting. But let's be honest, in the world that we live in and the way that most of us live our lives, though Sabbath assumes work, work does not assume Sabbath. And though fasting assumes feasting, our feasting doesn't assume fasting. Hence the need to talk about these things. And so why did Jesus come, eating and drinking, not fasting? See, that's the question, isn't it? Well, the Old Testament prophets often acted in symbolic ways to illustrate their message. You saw this with Ezekiel just this past week as we read. They would act in symbolic ways to illustrate the message God had given to them. And Jesus' feasting, his carousing with tax collectors and prostitutes, was the same. His message in Mark chapter 1 was very simple. The kingdom of God has come. God wins. I'm here as an example that God ultimately wins. And that's a cause for celebration. You with me? Hello? Okay. If the Gators win the national championship this year, 
I'll call for a fast, but those of you who are Gator fans will go around celebrating. You'll, to- you'll be excited about that because when your team wins, you celebrate. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come. God wins. Let's celebrate. Let's party. And so he came celebrating. Uh, C.S. Lewis picks up on this. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a scene when Aslan has come into Narnia. You've not seen him yet, but there's rumors of his coming. And everybody knows something's happening because all of the, the, the snow is starting to thaw. The rivers that were ice are starting to break up. And Father Christmas shows up because it's in, to this point it's been winter but never Christmas in Narnia. And all of a sudden, Christmas has come, and Father Christmas comes, and he brings gifts, and he brings food and wine to the animals, and they begin to celebrate, and they begin to feast and toast Aslan's coming and the the thawing of the winter. And the White Witch, who is the villain in the story, she comes upon one of their celebrations, and she cries out in anger, what is the meaning of all of this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? And in rage, she turns them into stone statues. And C.S. Lewis is obviously brilliantly reflecting on the dynamic between Jesus and the disciples feasting and the disapproval of the Pharisees. It's not what they expected. That woodland feast was not gluttony and waste and self-indulgence. It was actually the right thing to do. It was fitting because of how the times had changed with Aslan's return. And the same goes for the eating and drinking that Jesus and the disciples did the king had come isn't that the message right the king had come bringing salvation kicking off the time when all of the old testament promises would come true when sin would be forgiven when death would be swallowed up in victory when god himself would wipe away tears from the faces of his people and their shame and disappointment would become joy and isaiah said when that day comes the mountains will no longer drip Water that becomes streams, they will drip wine. That will just flow out to the whole earth for people to drink. And all of that is contained. All of that expectation and hope. Jesus is saying, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying all that the prophets have talked about is now going to start happening. The winter of the old age of sin and death is waning The spring of the new age of life and joy and peace has come. And do you understand there's only one way to respond to such good news? There's only one way to really embrace the gospel, not with fasting, feasting. And so the note of joy is also in Jesus' description of himself. Look here, he says, he uses a particular image. He is the king who's bringing a kingdom, but he says here, not only is he king... He's also the bridegroom, that's Mark 2, 19. And in the Old Testament, the kingdom's coming was described as a wedding between God and his people. And you know, a wedding is a time to celebrate. I mean, think of, can you imagine going to a wedding and abstaining from the fun? You won't get invited next time if you do that. Because it's an insult. That's an insult to the bride and groom. You honor their joy with your joy, Right? And that's exactly what's happening here. God referring to himself as a bridegroom, and that in itself is a cause for great joy because as Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And I hope you feel the import of how remarkable that is. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus, if you are a part of the kingdom that is coming, then that is true for you. The bridegroom rejoices over the bride, and so God rejoices over all who come to him. 
and faith in Jesus. And so at every wedding that you go to, when the door's open right there and the bride starts to walk down the aisle, here's a piece of advice. Make sure you take a peek at the groom's face. And then remember, when you see his face, remember the delight and the wonder and the joy of the groom is just a faint picture of God's heart for his people. And it is what Jesus has come to make possible. Because the Bible says that we're sinners and our sin have separated us from God and that that separation is the root of all of our sadness. It's the root of all of our unhappiness. It's the cause for great sadness for God as well. And so God came in Jesus, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself the guilt and condemnation of our sins on the cross and to give us his righteousness as a gift, a wedding dress, to clothe us in so that we could be taken to him as his own. And the good news of the gospel is that he does not love us because we're beautiful. His love makes us beautiful. And that grace is something worth celebrating. Okay? The bridegroom has come. Isn't that great news? The bridegroom has come. And that's why they did not fast. He's coming again, by the way. It's what Austin read just a few minutes ago. And our future, according to Revelation 19, which we read again, is a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a wedding waiting for us in heaven. And there will be no fasting there, okay? There's no fasting in heaven, isn't that, okay? So isn't that great news? There will be none of that there. There will be only feasting. But here's the question. What about the time in between his coming and his coming again? Well, then we fast. See, that's, that's, the, that's the lesson here. And so second, why do we fast? If all of that's true that I've said... Why do we fast? And again, the answer is very straightforward. We fast because they didn't fast because the bridegroom had come. We fast because the bridegroom has gone. Verse 20, the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting instead of eating and drinking during Jesus' earthly ministry meant that they had severely misread the times they were living in. Friends, listen, our eating and drinking and not fasting in his absence reveals that we severely misread the times that we're living in. The kingdom has come. What great news, but it is not all the way here yet. The future God promises is so much better than what we have now. We can know him now. Can, but then we will see him face to face. We can be forgiven now by putting our faith in Jesus. But then, then we will know the freedom and joy of being sinless. We are comforted in hard times now, but people still die. Terrible things happen in the world. But then, then, every sad thing will come untrue. And there will be no more funerals. And there'll be no more viruses that rage. And there'll be no more goodbyes. So Christians don't, see, Christians don't just choose heaven over hell. They choose heaven over the earth. They know that every having while we live this life is also wanting that every joy, though they're sweet, they are incomplete. Jesus has come and he will come again. 
But for now, he's gone away, and we're waiting. And one of the ways that you learn to wait is to learn to fast. John Piper uh, said this. He's written a lot about this. He said, fasting is the hunger of homesickness from God. It's a profound statement. Fasting, and it's, and it's, uh, it's their point two. It's the, it's the um, quote that I gave to you there. Fasting is the hunger of homesickness from God. Here's what he goes. He says this. This is so good. He says, the heart of it, the heart of fasting is longing. We are putting our stomach where our heart is to give added intensity and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. Do you ache for Jesus? Listen, do you ache for Jesus? We're putting our stomach where our heart is to give added intensity and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. We fast to express our longing and ache for all of the implications of Jesus' power in the present moment that isn't completely realized. And so his book, A Hunger for God, Piper's book, has profoundly shaped me uh, over the years. And, And the basic premise is that we don't feel... We don't feel this longing. We don't feel this hunger for God strongly enough. Our desires are not too strong. The problem is our desires are too weak. He quotes C.S. Lewis as saying, we're we're content making mud pies in the slum because we can't imagine a vacation on Anna Maria Island. But when the homesickness hits us, because it's inevitable, it does, when it does hit us, what we do is instead of just feeling the longing, feeling who wants to feel homesick? It's a terrible feeling. What we do is we anesthetize ourselves with food or some other kind of small pleasure that's satisfying for the moment but quickly wears off. And so he says, in what became a really famous passage, Piper says this, he says, the greatest enemy of God is not poison but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime drivel of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. He goes on, and know this is long, he says, not vices, the gifts of God. Your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. All of these, all of them can become a deadly substitute for God himself. So fasting is a strategy for fighting for the higher hunger for God himself by going without these things strategically from time to time in order to protect ourselves from, again, his words, the deadening effects of innocent delights and to preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God. In the Bible, fasting is an expression of grief. To abstain from food because you feel the absence of God. So in the Joel passage That Austin read earlier, the Lord calls a fast saying, return to me with all of your heart. Return to me with fasting and with weeping and rend your hearts. And so this is the crucial spiritual habit of properly reorienting yourself towards God as your highest good by going without some lesser good strategically for a time. And as you do, what what begins to surface, stuff bubbles up and you begin to learn what controls you. The Apostle Paul said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, he repeats, 
but I will not be enslaved by anything. And Richard Foster described our cravings and our desires as rivers that tend to, because of sin, overflow their banks. Fasting is the discipline of keeping them within their proper channels. I mean, think of how easy. This starts to feel like, you know, they used to say you go from preaching to meddling. And I don't like to do that too much, but uh, this is kind of like that a little bit, what I'm about to say, okay? So just bear with me, but I, it, just, it brings the point home. Think about how easy it is to go without reading your Bible on a daily basis, but when's the last time you didn't eat food for a whole day? You might say that's ridiculous. If I don't eat, I feel it in my body, but that's exactly the point. Jesus wants us to be people that when we don't read God's words, we feel it in our bodies and in our souls. Jesus models hunger for God for us that you feel the way you do when you miss a meal, which is why he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. He said, I have food, he said to the disciples, that you know nothing of. And I would say to us, if we can go without God's words, but we can't go without bread, something's wrong. We're in great spiritual danger. And so if you do not feel deep hunger for God, it is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because your soul is so stuffed with small things. There's no room left for the great. And one of the ways you manage this is when you become aware of how your heart has become too attached to food, to a relationship, to Netflix, to TikTok, you take a break. You set it aside for time. And it's hard, it really is, it's hard because it takes you into what Matthew refers to, Jesus says there, the secret place. Do you see that in verses 16 and 18? It takes you to the quiet place. You have to go into, you have to go into this quiet place, this alone place where you're confronted with your own emptiness, where it's just you and God and nothing else without the noise and the distraction, and that's a scary place for a lot of people to live. But Christians are people who have learned to become adept, who long to live in that kind of place. And in Matthew 6, here's the last thing I would say to you. In Matthew 6, Jesus promises reward. He says, your father who sees in secret, if you will go into that secret place with the Lord to reorient your life properly to him, to return to him, to return, return your heart to him, he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, what's that? What is the reward? Fasting is this returning to God, reorienting yourself to, to your whole self to him. And the reward then is not what you might think. It's not a better life. It's not more good things to indulge in. When you fast, you're seeking God. And Jesus says, God sees and he will reward you. He will give you the thing you're seeking. In other words, if you do what Jesus says here, the reward is that God promises to meet you in that place to give you more of himself. Because listen, there's a bread. There's a bread, Jesus said. When you eat, you will never hunger again. And when you go without physical bread because you're hungry for the bread that Jesus talks about, he promises that God will see and he will give to you the bread of life. And so we're confronted with an irony. Here's the irony. Fasting is actually feasting. It's as the old hymn writer William Gatsby said, again, dear Lord, we would be fed. We come to seek for living bread and feast on love divine. Dear Father, 
Let your presence be enjoyed by all your family and make each face to shine. If this be granted, we'll adore the hand that gives, yet keeps in store a boundless stock of grace. In every time of need we'll cry, and you shall all our needs supply in that with smiling face. Amen? He longs for you, but do we long for him? That is the question we must ponder together this morning. So pray with me, if you would, as we consider it. And so, Father, we would confess to you that we, I think we need to start confess to confess, to acknowledge, to agree with you, Jesus, when you call yourself the bread of life, that there is a bread, that there is a bread that the physical bread we eat is only a pointer to something greater that we need. Just as badly as we need bread to sustain our bodies, there is food that we need to sustain our souls, our very lives, and yet we have become so content with merely stuffing our bellies full of bread and not properly developing a hunger and an appetite for the bread of which we eat, we would never hunger again. Forgive us. Forgive us, Jesus, for, for turning it around where you say man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth, where we would say, no, we don't need that. We just need, we just need enough to get through today. Jesus, where you stood the test against Satan, we would fall. We would fail because we've not learned this life. And we need you. We need, we need the promise of your spirit. And so we thank you that in your death upon the cross for our sins and your being raised on the third day and ascending into heaven that you said, we read this week, you said, it's for your good that I go away because if I go away, I will send the spirit to you and he will be in you, a counselor, a helper. He will convict you of sin. He will remind you of the truth. He will be my power in you. And so we say, Father, here, we, we need you. We, our taste buds are all messed up. Uh, and we need a work of your spirit to come and to make, make things right again, to help us develop a taste for true bread that nourishes, not the junk food that we give our lives to, but the stuff that really, really satisfies. That's something we can't do. That is a work that we can't accomplish on our own. It is supernatural. It's something that, that you must do in us, and so, but we can yield ourselves. And so here we are. Would you speak to us in these moments? What is it that we need to go without? What is it that we strategically may need to lay down to develop and write into our lives a habit of saying, you know what, I need to step away from this every so often just to remind myself that I don't need it as much as I think I might. Holy Spirit, how would you speak to us this morning? We open our ears. We open our hearts. And yet... We sense, even in ourselves, I think for many of us, a stirring. A stirring to say, oh, I've tried everything and it's done nothing to satisfy my hunger. And a turning to you, would you turn us to you in these moments, even as we sing and express this longing desire for more of you, to meet you in the secret place. Father, Form these words on our lips as we sing that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Those are simple songs to sing. In some ways, it's a really hard couple songs to sing because they're so emotive and we don't do that well. Uh, and that's another reason for thinking about this discipline of fasting. You've all heard the phrase hangry. When you get hungry, what happens? 
kind of those deeper places of your heart start to really bubble up, right? And that we need to live from those places. Uh, you know, great Christian thinkers for centuries have said that the essence of Christianity is not just is not just what's rolling around in your head, but what's rolling around in your heart. And learning to express those things and live from those places. Now, there's a real mystery we 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 feel here because though we talk about the homesickness for God Himself, because the Spirit is set loose upon the world, these words that I now speak over you mean that we don't go from this place without Him. We go from this place with Him. Not walking beside us as the disciples did, but actually living in us. It's just that the Spirit is the first fruits of all that we long for, but the first fruits are still really, really good news. So receive this promise of benediction that as you go, you do not go alone. Uh, as you go and wait for His coming, uh, you already have His presence in the Spirit. And so receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He turn His face towards you and give you His peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.